Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk About Cities, a podcast dedicated to making complex topics in architecture and urban design more accessible. In today's episode, we will talk about Red Vienna, starting by giving some historical background information and introducing the, at the time, revolutionary ideas that were implemented and are still relevant today. Furthermore, we will discuss how the projects were financed and also go into detail with the Karl Marx Hof as a well-known example for municipal housing in Vienna that still shapes the cityscape today. Lastly, we'll talk about how the period of Red Vienna came to an end, in what way the development of municipal housing was continued with after World War II, and look at how municipal housing in Vienna works nowadays. I'm Matthias. And I'm Katharina. We hope you'll enjoy today's episode. Let's talk about cities. So before we get to our main topic of today, Red Vienna, maybe Matthias, you can start to set the scene. Mm -hmm. In 1910, Vienna was the capital of Austria-Hungary, an empire of 51 million people, and the city had slightly over 2 million inhabitants. For comparison, Paris had 2.8 million, Berlin had 2.1, and Moscow 1.6 million inhabitants. So it, it was really one of the biggest cities in Europe and, in fact, the entire world. Uh, it was a cultural and political hub, a metropolis of a great empire. In 1913, some of the future most important figures of the century lived in Vienna, like Sigmund Freud, um, Joseph Stalin, Leon Trotsky, Tito and Hitler. And then came the war. The First World War, although it wasn't fought in Vienna, had a huge impact on the city. There were supply issues and high inflation, which together with the large number of refugees and wounded arriving in the city, led to a shortage of food and housing. Hundreds of thousands of people had to queue up in terrible conditions for their ration of bread or risk going hungry. The rising rents led to the first efforts to introduce rent control and protection against eviction. The Austrian Emperor Karl I and the German Emperor Wilhelm II met in August 1918, at the end of the war, to discuss how to go on. The Austrians wanted immediate peace negotiations with the Allied powers, but the Germans first wanted to improve their military situation um, in order to strengthen their position in the peace no negotiations. A German offensive on the Western Front failed badly, and on October 26th, the Emperor Karl of Austria-Hungary ended the alliance with the German Empire and sent an offer of peace to the Allied powers. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was falling apart. Emperor Karl had written a manifesto on October 16th, offering the territories of the empire more sovereignty in a federal monarchy, a reform. But the manifesto was understood as an opportunity for self-rule, and on October 24th, Hungary reduced their union with Austria to merely sharing a monarch and no longer state institutions. On October 28th, Czechoslovakia declared their independence, and on December 1st, so did the Kingdom of the Serbs, Slovenes and Croats. On November 11th, Emperor Karl wrote a proclamation giving up his claim to participating in Austrian state administration. And the next day, the First Austrian Republic was declared. On November 13th, Karl wrote a proclamation for Hungary as well. And three days later, the Republic of Hungary was announced. And that was the end of the Habsburg monarchy. Mm -hmm. And how did the situation look like in Vienna at that time? Um, well, as I said, there was um, a lot of misery. Um, during the war, the Municipal Council of Vienna was run by the Conservative Christian Social Party, and they would have to answer for the shortages of food and housing and the general misery uh, of wartime Vienna. And there was also a revolutionary mood growing, uh, partly because of these um, circumstances. Mm -hmm. And then on May 4th in 1919, uh, there were the first free municipal um, council elections for women and for men, which was very early in, in European terms to also allow women to vote. And how did that turn out? Uh, well, the Social Democrats achieved an absolute majority with 54% of the votes. Mm -hmm. um, and that majority would hold until the end of the so-called Red Vienna period 
1934 and then also after the war continue. Yeah. So I think that's important. I forgot to mention that before. Um, if you refer to the period of Red Vienna, you're talking about the time between 1920 and 1934. Yeah, precisely. Um, and Vienna was at the time a municipality, but in the state of Lower Austria. Austria is a, is a, a federal republic with a lot of sovereignty of the individual nine states and uh, the, the Bundesländer. And the election result meant that the Social Democrats also chose the governor of the state. Um, for the Christian Social Party, this was unacceptable because Lower Austria with Vienna equaled about half of the entire nation's population. It was no longer an empire of 51 million. It was a small nation of about 7 million. Mm -hmm. And um, Lower Austria and Vienna together was about 3.3 million. Um, and many of these voters outside of Vienna were largely conservative farmers and so on. And they didn't feel represented by the Social Democrats mm -hmm. and their, their policies. So the Christian Socials, which um, actually ran the government at the time of, of the nation, wrote in their proposal for the first constitution of the first republic after the, the, the um, abdication of the emperor or exile, actually. Um, in this constitution, they treated Vienna as a state of its own. It was separated from Lower Austria to let the Social Democrats have their um, homelands or where they had their mo the most voters and then take Lower Austria with the farmers and the countryside uh, under Christian social rule. And um, there were different attitudes to that within the Social Democratic Party. Uh, not necessarily for or against, mainly what they wanted then was to be given a piece of the territory of Lower Austria, because the territory of Vienna, the city, was mostly the city. So they didn't really have, for example, land to grow food on. Mm -hmm. And there was still a food crisis even after the war had ended. Mm -hmm. So they wanted some land to, to, to grow food on. But um, that was refused. And... Um, the final constitution came into effect on November 10th, 1920. And Vienna was then a municipality and a state, but without changes to its territory. So that was already like, because you said they didn't have any um, land to grow food on. Was that also when those wild um, settlements started when people... No, had... no, that started already before then. Just as a... That started during the war. Um, just as a means of surviving, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, but then also did continue throughout the period of, of Red Vienna, but mm -hmm. became more and more organized and yeah. also finally became um, officially recognized by the by the city government. Yeah, I guess we'll, we'll cover that later. Yeah. I just didn't really know where it started and mm -hmm. I thought maybe around that time. Yeah. But, yeah. So um, a main point of... of Vienna becoming a state was that it actually made the entire Red Vienna period possible mm -hmm. because as a state, not just as a municipality, um, Vienna had the, the right and the power to enact state laws and also raise state as well as city taxes and receive federal funding as a state and a city. And this gave them a lot of political power um, and financial power. But most importantly, the power to, to, um, to raise taxes of their own. So um, the taxes that, that made Red Vienna possible were called the, the Breitner taxes. Yeah. That's, Maybe you want to tell us a bit about them. Yeah, that's because Hugo Breitner was the city councillor um, for finance during the Red Vienna. And he was, I think, at the end of Red Vienna, he was the most hated uh, politician or so because he was really radical. Could well be. Well, by, by the conservatives. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they had posters, for example, with him as uh, he was also a Jew. So there was a lot of anti-Semitic um, hatred towards him. 
did posters with him uh, with uh, like an exaggerated nose as the uh, need builder mm. uh, of, of Jews at the time grabbing the money from the people. Yeah, um, I mean the 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 tax that brought the most revenue was the welfare tax. Um, it was it, it was paid by employers as forty four percent of the wages and salaries of the workers, as well as by the banks and bankers as eight percent of their deals. I think one reason why he wasn't liked by many was that he. Um, introduced um, a tax on luxury foods or other luxurious goods such as champagne, for example. So now I'm thinking about this one billboard or, or poster where um, he's taking away the um, champagne from the rich people and mm -hmm. then um, yeah, saying that um, those uh, the taxes on luxurious goods will help to finance other projects. Besides the already mentioned tax on luxury items as well as the welfare tax, there was also the amusement tax um, that taxed events such as operas, concerts, uh, theaters, cinemas and sports event venues. But I guess the most um, known one is the house building tax um, in many Gemeindebauten and From now on, I think we will refer as municipal housing mm -hmm. for that. But in Vienna, it's known as Gemeindebauten. It often says about aus den Mitteln der Wohnbausteuer, which means built with the means of the house building tax. And I think that really um, also gives an insight on, on how those taxes were used, but also with that it was kind of shown off um, or yeah, like they, they, were, they were really proud, proud of, of it. Yeah. And, and kind of nowadays... Kind saying, look what, look what we made possible. Yeah, they were really showing, okay, um, we have taken your money, but we have used it for that. And um, here is what results from all the money that mm -hmm. you had to pay. But um, that was kind of the, the scene at that time. Mm -hmm. And still says that on the municipal housing nowadays. Yeah, precisely. And the house building tax accounted for about a third of the investments in building uh, the municipal housing mm -hmm. projects. Yeah. Um, do you maybe want to tell us about, about that particular policy or actually Red Vienna and its policies? Yeah, I think um, oftentimes when you think of Red Vienna, you, you mostly think about municipal residential housing, but it really was so much more. There was... Um, a revolution through evolution. They had so many bold plans that they wanted to go through with. And one of them was, I mean, you know, the situation after World War One was really bad. The, the hygienic uh, situation was really bad. Um, the people didn't have a proper education. The welfare system was bad. No one had proper living conditions. And so there really was a need for improvement. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of that was to put an emphasis on um, improving the social welfare as well as a reform of education. And um, maybe I can firstly go into the improvement of the welfare system because before it was mainly built up on church or other private institutions or charity. Mm -hmm. And... Um, They, like Julius Tandler, played a really important role there. And he proposed to um, replace the existing traditional uh, system and kind of start a socio-political experiment by um, improving living conditions and especially targeting working class families with more children. And he wanted to have um, the same possibilities for for like even those working class families. And he did that by um, having, like setting out a network of kindergartens, of um, counseling centers for, for mothers, but also parents who maybe um, were counseled in their marriage, for example, or also youth departments and adoption centers. So there was, there was really a network of institutions that, should help the families in all mm -hmm. possible ways. And, and how did they deal with the hygienic situation? 
yeah, that's another big topic because, um, so I think first of all, it's important to know that before there was oftentimes not even running water in the apartments. So maybe you can quickly say like those basenas that we still see nowadays. The the, the city had expanded rapidly in the 19th century and similarly to to Paris and and Berlin and Barcelona, for example, um, it was laid out in the former suburbs um, on a a grid uh, plan. And um, this grid plan allowed for easy speculation as the plots were very clear and similar in size. So this led to a lot of speculation and, and Mietzinshäuser uh, or the Mietzkasernen were, ba- uh, were built. So um, basically large barracks that were uh, then rented out um, as living spaces. And uh, before the war, I think in 1905, but the year doesn't really matter. Typically, each person had four square meters to live in because the, the apartments were so overfilled mm-hmm. with people and a lot of people couldn't afford an apartment even for a month or so. And they were called uh, Betkia mm-hmm. uh, because they just rented a bed for a night yeah. at a time. And a lot of families had to take take in these Betkia. So mm-hmm. they would, for example, while, while the father was at the factory uh, during the day, and the bed was empty, they would take in uh, a person to sleep in it during the day to to help them mm-hmm. uh, afford their rent. And uh, yeah, precisely the, the, the focus wasn't so much on quality of, of these apartments, but rather the facades as representative facades mm-hmm. um, to, to, um, to show to the people on the street um, how fancy they were. And um, these buildings worked on, on a sort of vertical segregation. So you had in the um, bel etage, the, the uh, mezzanine floor, the be- most beautiful apartments with a uh, high ceiling height. And then for each floor you went up and there was a lower class mm-hmm. living there. And in the very top apartments, you had the lowest classes and also the servants or housekeepers of yeah. yeah precisely which is really funny because today it's it's uh, exact opposite yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in many senses yeah and the the point about the water was that these apartments were then built without running water in the apartments and they had in the hallway in the in the staircases um usually basenas basena yeah. which is uh, a wash washing basin mm-hmm. where you could get your water so introducing running water in every apartment was a revolution for itself. Mm-hmm. And um, besides that, like that, of course, um, improved the hygienic situation already, but they also um, installed many public baths all over the city, such as the Amalian bath, which is really beautiful. And I recommend everyone who listens to that and hasn't been there uh, yet to to once check it out because it uh, still exists and um, yeah r- really really is beautiful. However, I have to say it was also criticized at the time that it was um, made in such a um, extravagant way because people uh, oftentimes weren't feeling good and then they're seeing those public baths and like especially workers felt like you're building it in such a way for us to not feel welcomed here and mm-hmm. to not feel um, that we have a place here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, they, they still exist. And um, this, and like not only Amalienbad, but also others. And then also um, there was uh, sanatorias built for, for people suffering from tuberculosis or venereal diseases, what was really common at that time. And um, there was also a lot of critique. Like I, I think we always also have to mention that, um, especially from the Christian Social Party, they were saying that it's um, they wanted to go back to the old welfare system. They mm-hmm. felt like it was um, that the Social Democratic Party were behaving like a mother and being too uh, protective of their citizens mm-hmm. and too like. A, I don't know, like watching over them yeah, and, and controlling them. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and this is a tension that of course exists until today as well in most countries this ideological uh, tension and we'll also later get into the precise tensions that existed at the time mm -hmm. which were really pretty much at the whole time at a, at a boiling point mm -hmm. yeah that describes it very well yeah and lastly there was uh, also school reform so um, everyone should have access to education and also all kinds of cultural activities like theaters concerts and other establishments um, or libraries were promoted and something like the Wiener Festwochen is also from that time ah okay mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, but now maybe we shall get into, um, yeah, the, more into the municipal residential housing and how that looked and, uh, yeah, talk a little bit more about urban planning and architectural uh, aspect of the time, which is a huge one. Yeah. As I said before, besides um, having a, a welfare uh, reform as well as a reform of education and um, uh, school reform, they were building a lot of municipal housing, um, a total of 382 municipal residential complexes were built at that time, to be precise. And they were, um, maybe one would think that they all looked quite uniform, but actually they were built from or designed by 199 different architects. And some of them were students of Otto Wagner, who is quite famous. Yeah, yeah, but on the other hand, they did have a certain style as well, a representative style. Mm -hmm. um, a few years before the, the old city walls of Vienna had been, or a few, about 50, 60 years before the city walls had been um, torn down. And in that space, the Ringstrasse was built and it was uh, filled with... Uh, on the one hand, uh, public institutions, so the parliament, the the um, Rathaus, mm -hmm. the, the city hall. All along the Ringstraße. Yeah, um, churches and, and so on, but also with palaces mm -hmm. from, from the rich merchants of the city and um, parts of, of the Red Vienna projects were called the... Uh, Ringstrasse of the proletariat mm -hmm. or also workers palaces to sort of refer to these um, these fancy houses built by the by the bourgeois uh, class yeah and that was also kind of the paradoxon that um, those bourgeois architects designed for people who were not so well off mm -hmm. but um, in general one could say that uh the principle of Red Vienna's social policy was to improve the quality of living for everyone. And they called it a postulated social obligation to take action for those in need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say um, that's why we say municipal housing, because it's usually referred to today as social housing. And that is because there is a point system and there is a max wage that you can have exactly. to, to be allowed to live there. But it's so such a wide program and, and so um, far reaching that it's not um, the sort of segregated um, case which you might imagine when you hear social housing. Uh, a lot of people, a, a really large um, part of the population live in these um buildings and therefore yeah. we we refer to it as municipal housing as yeah. it is as you said katarina um uh, or was a matter of improving the quality for everyone mm. and i think really important to mention here is that those municipal houses are spread all over vienna in other cities you can see that those um are more in the periphery or in mm -hmm. districts that are um not so well connected to the city center, but you can even in the old city find municipal housing, which is or like first district, which is the, the most expensive, or maybe is it, is it the 19th? I don't know. But like even in those 
um, very bourgeois districts, you find municipal housing. And I think that yeah. is really exceptional. Yeah. And, and there it's interesting to note that one of the reasons for that is judged to be the fact that the territory wasn't expanded mm-hmm. when the constitution was, was uh, um, signed. So because there was limited space, because it, the city was limited to the territory it had, there was little other chance but to spread these projects out uh, within the established uh, city area. But Katerina, there, there was a point system and still is, which uh, determined who was allowed to live in these buildings. So maybe you want to yeah. tell us about that. Yeah, there were three main categories, um, weak, medium and strong need and so like if a person was applying for a municipal flat that was for example homeless or injured from war uh, he or she would for example get five points however uh, being an austrian citizen was only worth one point but then if you were um, born in vienna it was worth four points which um, also led to a lot of critique because um, it, of course, excluded a lot of um, people that were not born in Vienna. Mm -hmm. That still applies to today, because people being born in Vienna still have an advantage compared to people not being born in Vienna. Mm -hmm. And yeah, of course, that is, or of course, it's it's heavily criticized, because who needs municipal housing is the question. Of course, there were also limits um, to to income but um yeah it's hard to control and i think that is a discussion that is really hard to uh, to have because uh, i guess there's always gray zones how to get to municipal housing even if you maybe don't necessarily need it and then mm-hmm. others can only apply after having lived in vienna for a certain period of time and so on so we will talk about how the situation is today later on. But um, yeah, it, it, for sure we can say that um, there was a system and it was uh, not so easy to get. So there was long queues for certain municipal houses because they were really liked. And people acknowledged that the sit- living situations were very good there. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe you want to tell us about some of the examples of... of- yeah, I would love to. I, um, Projects that were built. Yeah? Yes, I especially looked into Karl Marxhof because that is, uh, I think, the most well-known and really representing that time. It's funny because it's not the first municipal housing that is being built. It's also not the largest, but... Um, or but, like but it's, with the, the, it's, it's in, the longest building in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> so that, yeah, but it's not it, like it doesn't. Um, the um, Sandleitenhof has more apartments. That mm. is what I meant in size. But you're right. It is um, one point one kilometers long. Exactly, almost one point two. Mm-hmm. And you really like um, if you get out the U four Heiligenstadt. Um, it's not a long way to go, and it's. It, I mean, it's just there <laughs> and it's huge. Like, as you said, it really, it, it, it spreads out and. But I have to say, I don't think it appears as such a, a massive uh, monolithic structure. It, it, it does to me uh, appear rather as um, a series of blocks of mm-hmm. houses. Yeah. Maybe that's also because, um, actually only around 20% of the total area are being built on. So that is one uh, really important thing to mention that in total it's 156,000 square meters and only 28,751 square meters are being built on. And all the rest is greenery, uh, playgrounds and as well roads. Mm-hmm. So the Karl Marxhof is a uh, courtyard structure and has several courtyards. As I said, uh, 80% of the total area are gardens or um, playgrounds uh, or other greenery and roads. And um, it's funny to me that you say that it's 
not that um, monumental because the form really is, mm-hmm. I think, especially when you look from at it from above. And um, some even say that it reminds them of a fortress. And that's really telling in a sense that um, m- many of those uh, municipal buildings really were a um, city within this block. So you actually didn't have to leave it because um, there was, for example, in the Karl Marx Hof, there was a kindergarten as well as those uh, former mentioned advis- advisory centers for women or um, public baths, a library, laundromats that were really a social gathering place also a pharmacy, a post office, uh, several clinics, as well as a coffee house. So uh, the people didn't really have to leave it there. And they they loved that. We watched one doc- documentary where a, f- a person living there for, I don't know. Like 90 years. Yeah, he was, he was living there for a really long time. And he said when they played in the courtyard and one was calling his mom, then all the windows opened mm-hmm. and, you know, someone gave them some drinks or so. And I think that is so sweet. And you can really imagine the atmosphere there because everyone it was, was caring community. for each other. Yeah. yeah. And, and. They, yeah, they, they, they all knew each other, I guess, and it must have been really fun to live there. Yeah, so more theoretical stuff, maybe. Um, the Karl Marxhof was designed by the architect Karl Ehn, and it was built in three phases between 1926 and then uh, 1930 it was finished. And the opening of the Karl Marxhof was also quite... Ceremonial. Yeah, one could say, and the uh, mayor of Vienna at that time, Karl Seitz, um, said, now I'm translating it from German, of course, but he said, once we will no longer be, those stones will speak for us. And they really do. Mm-hmm. I mean, many parts of, of Karl Marxhof were destroyed during World War II, but it was rebuilt afterwards. And um, now it really does uh, the stones still speak for them, one could say, and it still represents the time of Red Vienna as possibly no other municipal residential complex, not only super interesting for people interested in this period of time or architecture, but really also attracts tourists from all over the world mm-hmm. because it is a really special building mm-hmm. complex. And um, some par- some flats were were merged because they were for the needs of today too small. So today there are 1,272 flats and originally there were 1,382 apartments. So um, yeah, a a bit fewer. And um, at that time they were designated for around 5,000 people. Today we're talking about around 2.2 people per um, apartment. So um, also funny to see how many more people lived in the apartments at that time. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned, the, the Siedlerbewegungen earlier. Um, yeah, those wild settlements. Yeah, precisely. Um, I think it is important to mention them as a sort of alternative to this top-down planning by, by, the, by the municipality. We have the same sort of parallel approaches today i would say in this this um this dichotomy of uh, top-down and bottom-up planning so for that time the the wild settlements could be seen as bottom-up because they um during the first world war moved into the forests surrounding vienna and cut down trees that didn't belong to them that were in private possession and uh, built houses um, freely just to survive. There was then, however, um, as, as mentioned already, a sort of official recognition of these. There were uh, movements um, demonstrating for, for this recognition mm-hmm. as the conditions were so dire. And finally, the, the, the municipality and the, the mayor of the city did recognize them. And with that came um, also um, 
a support and there was the the gazebo formed mm-hmm. um, a sort of uh, city run um, company that um, that supplied materials for for the building mm-hmm. of these buildings and that still exists today the gazebo there was also this sort of policy of the 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 muscle loan the muskelhypotheke that you could if you didn't have money as these people didn't you could work on the um, building site mm-hmm. and a certain amount of work uh, would in essence pay f- for for you living there mm-hmm. uh, which i think is a very interesting and and to me seems quite fair it reminds deal. me of those buildings that um that are now proposed in South America where only half of the building is being built and the other mm-hmm. half is kind of leftover space for when the people have more yeah, money. Yeah, proposed. I mean, they're, they are built already even by also, uh, Alejandro Aravena, the architect of Elemental. Yeah, it's a, it's a, those are interesting um, approaches to situations where uh, there isn't necessarily the political or financial possibility of supplying moment, social yeah. housing but you still have to find a way to to um to provide some sort of housing yeah i think that's important to mention um that when the city kind of legalized those wild settlements the first approach was also to have municipal buildings in that form kind mm-hmm. of but then at some point they figured out that they didn't have enough space for That of areas that were like um, together and um, that they would achieve more housing with building those super blocks. Schmelz is, for example, uh, a segment of of that time. Yeah, kind of these garden city-like areas with smaller houses. Yeah, and then you have to think about um, the garden city of Ebenezer Howard that was also, like that was the planning ideology of that time. And what I didn't mention before, this Lichtluftsonne, so uh, light, air, and sun, to get that to the people. And therefore, you can also understand why um, they were building those courtyards and um, really putting an emphasis on having light for the people Mm -hmm. and having green space for the people. As obviously the, the buildings built before then in the old city, but also really largely through the speculation in the 19th century had at most light wells mm-hmm. not proper courtyards and this was according uh, to the building rules at the time which at first actually didn't have any rules um, and then uh, were reformed and said you have to have so and so many square meters left over on the on the building site uh, but that meant that really a lot of the site could be filled with building and um, there really wasn't a lot of light. Mm-hmm. Those were very dense um, developments. Mm-hmm. Now we were get, kind of getting out of the chronological order, but kind of having a side story of the Siedlerbewegungen. But let's go back to Red Vienna. Um, how did it end? Um, well, as mentioned before, it is considered to have lasted between 1920 and 1934. And the, the year 1934 is um, important, uh, not just for the end of Red Vienna, but in fact, for the end of the first Republic of Austria, as Austria became a dictatorship, even before the Anschluss by by Hitler and the Nazi Germany. But that development had been prepared for by uh, certain events leading up to it. So the tensions that we've mentioned between the the social democratic Vienna and the mostly conservative rest of Austria um, had continued to rise. In, in this time, um, each political side had paramilitary groups attached to them. It was the Republican Defense League of the Social Democrats, and they stood opposite the Homeland Protection, as well as other forces from the conservative and nationalist camps. 
the World War One Peace Treaty of Sanchiman and Lai. As a, um, there was a separate peace treaty, so it's not the, the Treaty of Versailles that is most well known because mm -hmm. that was just the Treaty of Germany. But as explained earlier, Austria decided to end the alliance with Germany and um, signed their own peace deal. And this peace treaty, similarly to the Treaty of Versailles, uh, limited the size of the Austrian army so that they could not instigate any more wars. Um, so the size was limited to 30,000 men, uh, which is a very small size. There were fears that that was not enough to protect Austria if they were to be attacked. And so partly for that reason, the, the different political sides formed their own armed paramilitary groups to be able to defend the country in, in the case of an attack. But not only for that, but also to advance their ideologies with force and the, the, the presentation of force. So, for example, the stated purpose of the Republican Defense League um, was to protect the Republic and its constitution and to support the national army and police in keeping public peace and order, as well as to support public events of the Social Democratic Party. It took part in political marches and protected workers' strikes. Its opposites, the Homeland Protection, and also other groups such as from the early 30s onwards, the SA and the SS, openly called for the abolition of democracy in favor of authoritarian rule. They wanted back to the, the time of the emperor. Um, on January 30th in 1927, one of the worst clashes between the Defense League and a conservative nationalist group of frontline veterans, which were called Frontkämpfer, um, took place in Schattendorf. Um, during a march of the Defense League, they were fired upon by fr frontline veterans, and one child and one adult were killed. The three shooters were freed from all charges by the court, and the wrath of the working class erupted. Um, they saw it as a class justice and uh, could not believe that these murderers were acquitted. And so on July 15th, um, huge crowds gathered in the city center of Vienna to protest and a general strike was called throughout the whole country. Um, the Palace of Justice in Vienna was set on fire by the crowds and police killed 94 people and injured over a thousand. In other parts of the country, the Homeland Protection broke the general strike. The paramilitary forces on both sides increased their preparations and the Defense League considered the government now to be on the side of the enemy. Um, Clashes between them became more intense and the homeland protection of the state of Styria under uh, Walter Frima um, initiated a coup d'etat. They marched on Vienna to, to take uh, power of the entire country, but were stopped by the Republican Defense League and the National Army. But the army were purposefully slow to react. Um, they let the homeland protection disperse and hide and also hide their weapons mm -hmm. because in the end they were on the same side and opposed to the the uh, social democratic party and the court process that followed was just a sham the all the leaders of the coup were acquitted and more and more the republican defense league was persecuted by the government there were um, house searches where they seized the weapons of the republican defense league and they also stopped them from carrying out marches with the, the Social Democratic Par Party. After Engelbert Dollfuss became chancellor in 1932, this persecution intensified and the Defense League was forbidden entirely from gathering. In March 1933, Dollfuss took advantage of issues with proceedings in parliament and he declared it unable to function and therefore defunct. Mm -hmm. This was de facto the, the beginning of the um, dictatorship. Dolfus used a 1917 emergency law from the First World War to abolish the freedom of the press, the freedom of assembly and other constitutional rights. The Republican Defense League was outlawed and members were arrested. The Fatherland Front, the Vaterländische Front, was founded as a unity party to rule as a one-party government, incorporating the Christian Social Party and the Homeland um, Protection Party, the Heimatblock, uh, into one party. But so where was the Social Democratic Party then? The Social Democratic Party hadn't been banned yet, as it wasn't as easy as banning the Republican Defense League as they weren't an armed wing. Mm -hmm. um, 
but its members were persecuted. There were razzias and arrests by the police and the army in the Social Democratic Party. And the goal of the government was to provoke a violent uprising Mm -hmm. by the Social Democratic Party. And then this would be quelled by the army and by the homeland protection. And they they succeeded in that. They continued the persecutions and, and arrests until in February 1934, um, a group of Defence League members in Linz tried to stop a search for weapons in the Social Democratic Party headquarters uh, in the Hotel Schiff. And that was the start of the Austrian Civil War. Uh, it's also known as the February Uprisings, the mm-hmm. Februar Kämpfe. And also Karl Marxhof played an important role there, right? Yeah. Or really was... Uh... It did, absolutely. So um, we'll get to that because the Republican Defence League fought against the army and the police and a general strike was called. But the Defense League and the Social Democrats had already been weakened through the persecution and, and arrests in the years prior. Um, so the general strike failed very quickly. Uh, not that many even took part. And few of the Defense League took part in the uprising, mm-hmm. in, the, in the battles. Um, the battles were mostly fought in working class districts of Vienna, Linz and some other smaller cities. Mm-hmm. And... The army bombarded the positions of the Defense League with artillery. So including the buildings of Red Vienna, where they had built up their strongholds mm-hmm. and, and used as fortresses, as you alluded to in the aesthetics mm-hmm. of, of the buildings earlier. Um, the Karl Marxhof, the Reumannhof and the Sandleitenhof were among the buildings bombarded and heavily fought for. The Social Democratic Party was in in the in the following days banned finally, and its organizations as well as unions were were also banned. And nine people were executed after these struggles. Um, some party leaders fled the country, and Karl Seitz, the the mayor with those famous words, mm-hmm. um, on the Karl Marxhof was arrested. And that so that was the end of Red Vienna, but it was also the end of democracy mm-hmm. in, in Austria. Um, the battles ended on February 15th, so uh, just three days after they started. And the government claimed that about thir- 314 people were killed and 800 wounded, but those numbers are likely way too low. Mm-hmm. It was likely in the, in the thousands. Um, the artillery bombardment in Vienna, in particular, is estimated to have taken the lives of 250 to 270 civilians. And um, even Hitler, who by then was dictator in Germany, was critical of that, saying that Chancellor Dollfuss had, with criminal stupidity, had women and children shot. Um, in July of the same year, Austrian National so- Socialists attempted a coup d'etat, which failed, but uh, Dollfuss was killed in the attempt and his replacement was Kurt Schusnig who would rule as dictator and leader of the Fatherland Front uh, until the Anschluss by Nazi Germany in 1938. Thinking about municipal housing, was there any construction during World War II? No, no. There were a few buildings built after the February struggles, Mm -hmm. but not within the Red Vienna program. Uh, And during World War II, there weren't really any buildings built. Yeah, actually, super many were destroyed, of course, and had to be reconstructed afterwards. And I guess there was a huge pressure to build up um, those housings very fast because... Yet again, super many people were homeless and injured from war, mm-hmm. terrible conditions. One could say that after 45, 1945, a new era for municipal housing has begun. Mm-hmm. Also with a different style. And I guess we can get into that a little bit. But um, maybe we can mention the first large building project, which was the Per Albin Hanson Siedlung Um yeah, maybe you want to say why why it was called like that. Well, uh, Sweden um, helped Austria um, after the First World War as well, but also after the Second World War and f- helped them financially, but also sent them machines, Swedish machines, which were able to use bricks from destroyed buildings to produce new bricks, mm-hmm. which helped a lot in the 
in the rebuilding of Vienna. Yeah. And Per Albin Hansson was the, the prime minister of Sweden during the war. Yes. And for a couple of years after it until he died. Um, yeah, but contrary to to the period of the Red Vienna before the Second World War, they were mainly building those gap buildings and not so much those uh, super blocks anymore. Mm-hmm. And um, oftentimes they were also called Emmentaler Bauten. Mm-hmm. Emmentaler is this cheese, this rectangular... And uh, it has a lot of holes. Right? <laughs> yeah, but... Also because people felt that they weren't so characteristic anymore. They mm-hmm. were there was no architectural finesse and mm-hmm. just producing housing mm-hmm. actually. And um, also, it was of course also a different era in architecture, a different zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it was the beginning of the era of. Um, like economical functionalism or mm-hmm. constructional logic of a focus on um, building cheap and building fast yeah. with um, uh, like systems of construction. And also the spirit of having a city within these blocks were was completely lost because maybe those um, new mun- municipal buildings were arranged around important infrastructure like supermarkets or whatever but um it wasn't anymore that there were all those um institutions within the blocks mm-hmm. that the people didn't actually have to leave the complexes yeah of course there was the, the it was rather the era of the charter of athens which uh, proposed the the split of functions mm-hmm. so you have one place where you live you have one place where you work you have one place for for center uh, activities or functions and around those places you go by car yeah and how is it looking today shall we cover that as well yes we, I, we I absolutely i think that is important yeah we tackled it a little bit before but um actually vienna is really proud being uh, the biggest communal house owner in europe um because they manage around two hundred twenty thousand municipal flats And around 500,000 people, which equals around every fourth Viennese person living in um, municipal housing, Mm -hmm. which is a lot. And I guess um, even though Vienna can be really proud of how many people live in municipal buildings um, and therefore living is actually still affordable in Vienna, one always have has to be, I don't know, trying to to get better or also um, continue to to make housing affordable because it can go really quickly that it goes in another way where suddenly we're in a situation where we are in in many capitals of mm-hmm. the world in Europe, um, especially where housing is not affordable at all and um, there's also a lack of housing options yeah and i I think it's uh, also important to note that uh, a main difference between the the municipal housing of vienna of today and the red vienna period is that the the housing of the red vienna period was financed mainly by uh, specific taxes and those breitne taxes Mm -hmm. that that we spoke about aren't possible today Mm -hmm. politically uh, speaking so um, a different system is used of uh, of uh, subsidies. So a lot of the um, housing that is built is not built directly by the city or the municipality, but rather by uh, private building companies who um, have to take part in competitions. So the city has sites around the city and um, stages competitions for the right to build on those sites and for that they have particular conditions that must be met in terms of now the the fear silence so the four pillars of um, sustainability and then the winner um, builds and is subsidized to a certain degree to yes. be able to build and keep the rents low and i think that can be questioned as well because but in they, the end it's it's tax money subsidizing private activity mm-hmm. and they are then it's um 
not so that they can uh, take out as much profit as they want. That is also then regulated, but but still this, as we've mentioned in the, the episode about gentrification, also in, in uh, particular for Vienna and its renovation uh, projects to question this method of, of using subsidies. So that's mainly how the municipal housing of Vienna is built today. And there was a period of, I think, 15 to 20 years where no buildings were, no Gemeindebauten were built. So mm-hmm. buildings built directly by the municipality. Um, they've started that up again um, as the Gemeindebauten Neu. And it will be interesting to see how well that will work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as I said before, there's um, still requirements one has to fulfill when applying for municipal housing. And today that is managed by the um, so-called Vienna housing ticket, so Wiener Wohn ticket. And it's like the entrance ticket to the entire housing um, offer of Vienna. And you have to be a minimum, you have to have a minimum age of 17 years and As I said before, you have to continuously have lived in Vienna for two years. You also have to have an Austrian citizenship or equivalent, which already, of course, um, all those requirements already um, exclude a lot of people and therefore can be discussed. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, an equivalent is, for example, to be um, uh, a citizen of of an EU state. But even so, it's it's actually not even just uh, two years of residence in Vienna. It's two years of continuous residence on one address, mm-hmm. which makes it particularly dif- uh, difficult because if you move to Vienna, um, you can't get into the social housing yet. Maybe you take any uh, flat you can find. It's also quite common to live in student cooperatives, Wohngemeinschaften or WGs, and you usually don't live in those or or are able to live in them for two years continuously. Rather, Mm -hmm. you move around in different apartments and you never reach this status of two continuous years so that you're able to apply for for a subsidized apartment. So there's definitely this, as there was in the Red Vienna period, barrier, barrier, absolutely, to to outsiders. Yeah. And then, of course, there's other um, requirements, such as like I only listed some now, but um, also, of course, there's a maximum income limit and um, you shouldn't have any concerns regarding tenancy law or have, they say, clarified family circumstances. Mm -hmm. And additionally, you will have to have one more specific reason for needing housing, such as being, for example, a single parent or um, having an age-related or illness-related housing need. So there are those different requirements. Which can also even be, be, um, I would say, not because of the requirements in themselves, but it can be criticized, this entire model of social housing, because it, it can lead to a stigmatization of the people who live there. Mm-hmm. It it becomes very clear that they are people of a lower class needing help of the state, mm-hmm. which can also have a segregating uh, tendency. And uh, as the buildings were built, spread out through Vienna, during Red Vienna, um, there has been traditionally very little segregation in Vienna, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it is um, rising uh, as far as I know. Yeah, but Sonnenviertel, for example, is also with a lot of municipal buildings, and that is really at the city center, I would say. Sure, that's but that's one. Um, on the one hand, that is one example, but as we've already established, it's not that easy to get uh, a subsidized apartment, mm-hmm. and in the end, quite a few people also live in um, apartments rented on the private market and such a project as Sonnenviertel, which is a quite huge urban planning uh, project, um, then carries the risk of gentrifying that area, which is one of the poorest, if not the poorest districts of Vienna. Okay, so I think we have come to an end and pretty much covered the main events, um, maybe... Yeah, there's still a lot to to say about Red Vienna and uh, uh, a lot of interesting things to read. Which uh, so I I recommend a googling of it. There are there was so much going on at the time 
for example, particularly interesting to me is also the uh, graphic design language mm -hmm. that was used by the Social Democratic Party and their surrounding. So then thank you for listening. And tell us what you want to hear more about and what you think um, of the topic. And let's talk about cities. Mm -hmm.